You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Santa Barbara, California, specifically Montecito, California, uh, the home of the free and the brave. Today, our topic is an interesting one. It is uh, the the question of capitalism being under such intense scrutiny that it is today. And you're going to discover today why many people are skeptical of capitalism and how saving capitalism actually begins with defining its morality. Now, that sounds kind of deep, and that's not uh, hard to imagine, given the fact that our guest today is an economist and a philosopher. But before I get into that interview, I want to start uh, with just a few things. First of all, I want to remind you about our website, wealthformula.com. That's where you need to go if you want to get the resources that are associated with this podcast, specifically uh, you know, some of the downloads, the books that are available there, some of the webinars. And also, um, it's where you go to sign up for our investor club. If you're an accredited investor and you want to take some of these things that we talk about and actually implement them through investing uh, in various types of assets. If you are an accredited investor that's worth checking out, the accredited investor club, you can join at wealthformula.com. Now, today, you know, just some thoughts before this podcast, you know, at the core you know, when I think about capitalism and wealth, you know, it takes me back to something that I've talked about before, you've heard me talk about before, which I believe in, that at the core of every individual's subconscious, there is what I call, and I will continue to call the wealth thermostat. It sets the temperature of your, you know, your financial life. And it is a product of nature and nurture. And once it's set, it's frankly, it's difficult to change. But if you know you have a thermostat, then it is actually a lot easier to change your mindset. And so what do I mean by this? Well, think about yourself for a moment, right? Your image of yourself, your financial self. Are you a 200K per year guy? Are you a 500K per year kind of gal? Now try to imagine yourself with either one or more uh, zeros behind your yearly income number, okay? Now imagine that. Does that fit with this overall image of you? And I'll tell you that I'm sure, it. frankly, it doesn't. Because if you are a $500,000 per year type, it's good that you don't see yourself as a $50,000 per year type because it's what, you know, it's what keeps you from becoming a $50,000 per year type. And by the way, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being a $50,000 a year type. I used to be one. I used to be less than that as a surgical resident, but I'm not anymore. And, you know, I've never really saw myself that even when I was a $50,000 per year guy, I just never saw myself that way. Anyway, the fact is that the limited image of yourself is not only keeping you from becoming or regressing to that $50,000 per year resident, it is also keeping you from becoming a person who makes $5 million a year or $10 million a year or $20 million per year. And I do believe that that it's true. It's not just psychobabble. I, I believe this. The money thermostat exists I recognize it in myself, and frankly, I've manipulated it 
several times in my life already. And um, it's sort of mind boggling when I think about, you know, the way I used to think about numbers and money and the way I think about it now. It's really, really different. And that requires a different, completely different mindset. Now, the question is, why would we limit ourselves to a certain amount of money? Certainly, you can understand not wanting to be poor, but why would you create walls, mental walls that would prevent you from becoming wealthier than you are? Well, maybe part of it, the truth is, and again, getting into this deep subconscious stuff, maybe there's part of you that doesn't want to be rich. Maybe you grew up believing that rich people only got there because they took advantage of the poor. And maybe you believe that there's a finite amount of money out there and the finite amount of wealth. And then if you take more than your share, your fair share, where'd you hear that before? You're being greedy. Now, after all, I think these things are very deeply rooted in culture, right? We live in a Judeo-Christian society and the Bible says that money is the root of all evil. What was once considered usury and, you know, a really not a very nice word to throw around, but now it arguably is the basis of our economy, right? I mean, debt and, you know, lending, it's all the basis of our economy now. And our cultural bag on money is deep. It is so deep that it would require years of national therapy, to unravel, but its effects are not hard to see in the modern guilt-laden financial politics, particularly now, not to get political, but if you look at it specifically on progressive left, like the ultra left wing of the party, the democratic socialists, as they're called, that part is constantly demonizing wealthy people, billionaires, or you know, people who are making, you know, a million dollars a year or even a half million dollars, they're demonizing you, frankly, right? You're, you're doing something wrong and you need to pay your fair share. The truth is, though, that when it comes to money, money is not bad, right? Money is a tool. Money is a tool. And certainly, you know, what they say, a fool with a tool is still a fool, but it can also be used for so much good, right? It can take away hunger. It can alleviate pain. It can and has raised the standard of living for the entire world. It has done this. Wealth is not bad. Wealth is a gift to us created by capitalism. And all you need to do to corroborate the statement I just made is look at world history through the lens of economics. Yet, Politicians can't escape what my guest on this week's Wealth Formula podcast, James Otteson, calls this seven deadly economic sins that continue to mislead people and, frankly, misdirect policy. So when we come back, James is going to tell us all about it. He's written a book on this, fantastic book, and uh, it's going to be really important. It's probably something you should have your children listen to because it is a mindset type of thing. When we come back, James Otteson. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Dr. James Otteson. Dr. Otteson is the John T. Ryan Jr. Professor of Business Ethics and Rex and Alice A. Martin Faculty Director of Notre Dame, the Deloitte Center for Ethical Leadership in the Mendoza College of Business at the University of Notre Dame. He's also a senior scholar at the Fund for American Studies, a senior fellow 
at the Fraser Institute and past president of the Association of Private Enterprise Education. And he is the author of a very interesting book called Seven Deadly Economic Sins, Obstacles to Prosperity and Happiness Every Citizen Should Know, which was released in April of 21. James, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be with you. So this is a fascinating. I think your background is absolutely fascinating. So you you're trained in both economics and philosophy. Is that right? Uh, that's right. Yes. Uh, so my uh, PhD is in philosophy, and uh, and I guess despite that, I teach in a business school. There aren't many philosophy PhDs who teach in business schools, <laughs> but um, I, yeah, it, it is a an unusual, but it's a it's a very fruitful background to have when thinking about business ethics issues. Yeah, and these issues are actually quite relevant today, and especially given the you know polarity of, uh, of politics and you know what's going on with the economy. You know, I want to kind of jump into the book. Um, I mean, first of all, what inspired this seven deadly economic sins concept? Yeah, no, uh, thank you for asking. Yeah, one of the things that I had noticed, um, especially teaching in a business school, is that just about everybody has an opinion about economics, about various economics matters, uh, but they, but many people who have opinions, including very strong opinions, have never actually studied economics. Right. Um, which I think is interesting, um, and uh, that, so, that there might be an analogy there to medicine as well. Many people have opinions about medicine, even though they have never studied medicine. Uh, but in the case of economics, I think it um, uh, people might be forgiven because if you look at people who are economists or professional economists, you know they vote for different parties. They have a hard time predicting when the next recession will happen. They don't know what the market is going to do, and so I think a lot of times people assume that well. Economists don't really know anything, and the discipline of economics doesn't really know anything. And again, I think there might be something of an analogy there to medicine. You know, if you talk to two or three doctors about how to treat something, you might get three different opinions. Um, and so, but the wrong conclusion, I think, to reach is that, well, therefore, uh, medical professionals and economists don't know anything. Um, and I think uh, that's true for economics as well. There are a few things that just about every economist, whatever their, um, their other views are, that they nevertheless agree on. Um, and so I thought, um, and, and interestingly, those things that economists tend to agree on, um, and it's not perfect agreement, uh, but it's, a, I would say, general consensus. Those, those things tend to be things that are fairly basic to the discipline, but also I think um, if people could, un- could learn them and internalize them, could actually have pretty meaningful um, implications and ramifications, not only in their own pri- personal lives, but also in their evaluation of policy. Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking about one a great uh, quote. I think that was in your book about uh, Winston Churchill going for opinions, you know, and and what maybe you could tell that story. I think it's a good one. <laughs> uh, yeah. So <laughs> the famous saying, and, and I suppose it's possibly apocryphal, but the famous saying was uh, he was looking for a one-handed economist so that he would never have to hear somebody say. On the other hand, because uh, just about every economist will say, almost no matter what you ask, I mean, sort of the joke is that no matter what you ask, they say it depends, or they say, well, here's one view, but on the other hand, there's another, uh, here's another view. Yeah, I I mean, you tell me, is that true about medicine as well? Well, I think there is, and I I think, again, I think there are some basic fundamentals, right? I mean, we actually talked about this recently in a show where I think in many ways it is harder to be an economist because especially these days, you know, some of the basic basic tenets of predicting the economy um, are, you know, they're, they're being artificially kind of, uh, well, the goalposts are changing, right? I mean, what did the Fed used to do 
in response to you know various challenges in the economy. It's almost like right now, the initial mandates of the Federal Reserve in the U.S. are not what they are now, right? They're, the rules are changing. Whereas in medicine, at least, you know, if the heart stops, it means you're dead, you know? And, <laughs> and, and so, and that death does exist, right? And, and that's, that is a, a sort of a different thing. And I think that for me, the way I kind of see the economist role, uh, recently I had a Dennis Gartman on who's a, used to write a letter called the Gartman Letter, who's been writing since the 70s. And I addressed this with him too. I said, well, gosh, you know, <laughs> uh, things are different now. And he, he couldn't, you know, he, he agreed completely. It was just, it's a different world. And so I think it makes it a little bit harder. But um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, some of these concepts, what I, I think are important. And one of them I think is very valuable. I think philosophically, uh, the idea that some policymakers may view capitalism as a zero sum game. Right. You want to talk about what that means and, and, what the implications are? Yeah, um, I think that's a recurring fallacy and a, a recurring what I call economic sin. In fact, I think it's it's the first chapter, so it's in some ways the number one. Right. Um, and so the analogy is if you think about a game of chess or a game of baseball or football, if you have one winner, there must be a loser. Um, and so, you know, whatever benefits one person comes or one team is at the expense of the other person or team. So plus one plus minus one equals zero. That's hence the term zero sum. And I think a lot of people think that that's the story of wealth, too. If one person becomes wealthy, you know, maybe somebody becomes a billionaire, that can only be by having impoverished other people or right. extracted wealth from other people. So I benefit myself, but only at your expense. And to be fair, I think there's um, a lot of historical precedent for that. I mean, sure. if you think about, you know, the, the so-called great civilizations of uh, human history in the past, you know, you think about the pharaohs and and the pyramids. Well, it took a lot of capital to build those pyramids. You know, where did they get that capital? Well, theft, slavery, conquering, usurpation. So they were taking wealth from other places and concentrating it where they were building their pyramids. But similar things are, are true about lots of human civilizations. The Romans, if you think about the ancient Romans and the, the Colosseum and the aqueduct, where did they get all the wealth for that? Well, again, by enslaving people, conquering people, taking their things. Um, so for a lot of human history, that actually has been how people have gotten their wealth is by extracting it uh, from others. So they benefit themselves at others' expense. But that doesn't have to be the way that a person can increase in wealth. So there's a different way of increasing. Think about, you know, if you go into a coffee shop and you say you'd like a double pumpkin spice mocha latte or whatever, and it's $5, you give the barista $5, the barista gives you your, uh, your drink. Which have you benefited from that transaction? Well, the answer is both of you did. Otherwise, if either one of you didn't benefit from it, you would have said no thanks and gone somewhere else. So what that means is that you have what economists call a positive sum transaction. Both sides benefit. Yep. And in a market economy, that tends to be the way that people actually generate wealth is by having thousands, millions, billions of these kinds of transactions where both sides benefit. Um, and so what you see is that the overall prosperity in a society can increase for everybody. It doesn't have to be one person benefiting at the expense of another. It can, in fact, be both sides, both parties or all parties to a transaction. That can be any kind of a transaction. And if you're buying something, trading for something, you're partnering with somebody else, all of those transactions can be positive sum. And the real story of increasing wealth that we've seen, especially in the last 200 years, to levels that have never existed in previous human history. Um, the real story of that, I think, is these 
millions and billions of repeated positive sum transactions that improve the positions of all the parties to the transactions. So that's a positive sum. So I think one of the first fallacies and recurring fallacies that people uh, believe about economics is that the only way to be uh, to become wealthy is by extracting it from someone else. Yeah, absolutely. And you hear that all the time, right? You hear it especially now in in, in various voices in in the US political system and you know there's this blame for the difference between the the rich and the poor widening. And one of yep. the ways that we hear it from a policy perspective of trying to sort of bring that narrowing that gap is through the punishment I would call it of of taxation. Why is that a fallacy? Yeah. Um, well, there are many elements to that one, um, yeah. and, I, yeah, and 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 maybe I put this in sort of a business context. You know, one of the things that people often say to business people or to businesses is that they need to give back, give back to society. Um, I'm sure you've heard that. That's a fairly common sentiment. But I don't know if you've ever spent taken a moment to think about what that phrase means: give back. Um, you know, notice that people don't say that businesses or business people should give. Right. They say they should give back. Um, you know, and if you think about, you know, when you were a kid, if your mother said to you, you need to give that back, well, what does that mean you did? It, it means you yeah. took something that didn't belong to you and now you need to make up for it. You need to atone for it like you sin. Right. And I think a lot of people think that about uh, business generally, that if you succeeded, if you were successful, somehow, somewhere along the way, uh, you must have done something wrong. Even if we don't know exactly what it is you did wrong, you must have done something wrong. And so I think when you hear people today talking about it, I'm speculating a bit, but when you hear sure. people today talk about, well, uh, the wealthy need to pay their fair share. <laughs> what um, is a fair or, share, right? Exactly. Yeah, well, well, I think what m- part of what might be behind that is the idea that, well, if you became wealthy, we're pretty sure you did something wrong. You need right. to atone for it. And if you don't do it voluntarily, well, then we're going to do it for you. What is the reality in terms of, you know, obviously the implications from the economic side here, what is the fallacy that drives this idea that 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 society would be better by punishing the rich i mean isn't there i guess i guess my question here is that what's the rationale that would be a better society overall when we know that capitalism tends to improve the quality of life of people yeah that's a good question i i think actually there there might be two connected um what i call economic sins going on and thinking about that um, one is what I call the progress is inevitable fallacy, yeah. uh, which is the idea that no matter what policies we have or what we do, growth will always happen. Progress will always, you know, the, the next iPhone will be six months away, no matter what, no matter what we do, um, no matter how we change incentives or policies or anything else. And I think that's uh, that's clearly a fallacy. Just like the Soviet um, Union. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, prosperity is something that's, uh, that takes time and is difficult to generate, but it's, but it's easy to destroy. Um, and it can happen very quickly. Um, but I think there's another, um, another, what I call economic sin that might also be involved. Um, I call it the good is good enough fallacy. And what, what I mean Mm -hmm. by that is that, um, you know, suppose somebody says to you, uh, look, if I took 50% of your wealth, um, you know, however much wealth you have, if I took 50% of it, look at this good thing I could do with it. And suppose, you know, and I could, maybe I give it to charity or maybe I start a business or whatever it is I'm going to do with it. Let's just suppose for a second that whatever I propose to do with it actually would be lead to good results. It would be a good thing that I could do with it. Um, so, but that by itself doesn't close the case uh, that we should actually take that wealth from you because the other part of it is, well, what would you have done with that same wealth if we hadn't taken it from you? 
In other words, um, you always have to think about the concept that economists call opportunity cost. We have limited resources. We don't have infinite resources. So anytime you put any resources to one end or spend money on one thing as opposed to something else, and it doesn't have to just be money. It could be things like your time or your talent. If you put them in one direction, that means you cannot also at the same time put them in another direction. So before you decide on any particular course of action, you have to ask yourself, well, what else could we have done with those resources or what else would have happened with those resources? What other good things could have come about? Um, and then you have to compare them. And let me give you, a, if you'll allow me, I'll just give you a quick sure. example of that. Yeah. Um, a, few, a few years ago, uh, my son, uh, who's, a, who's a teenager, um, decided to make the case to me that we should buy a Ferrari. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he was a teenage boy, so you can imagine the kinds of, you know, he laid out the case for why we should have a Ferrari, all the great things he thought would happen for him and in his <laughs> life if we had a Ferrari. Um, yeah. And after laying out all of those things, he said, uh, he concluded with, therefore, we should buy a Ferrari. Um, and I said to him, okay, thanks. You know, I appreciate the argument. Um, but, um, you haven't thought about opportunity costs. And he said, well, what's opportunity cost? I uh. said, well, if we bought the Ferrari, we might, for example, have to give up our house <laughs> or, or maybe I couldn't yeah. send you to college or your siblings to college. Now, you right. know, he probably didn't care so much about his siblings going to college, but him going to college, he cared about. So that, that's, a, that's another example of this good is good is not good enough uh, fallacy. The, the fact that something could lead to a good end doesn't mean you should therefore do it. And I think you can apply that to other things. You know, if we're thinking about a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure bill, um, let's suppose for the sake of argument that whatever is in the bill would actually be good things, um, you know, that people might contest that. But if you just stipulate to that for the sake of argument, it still doesn't uh, necessarily prove that you should do it because you have to ask yourself, well, what would those trillions of dollars have done otherwise if we had left them in the hands of taxpayers? You know, the, the, if, if the infrastructure bill we're contemplating now, so one number is three and a half trillion dollars. Um, well, that's very, that's a lot of money. Um, three and a half trillion dollars is about $10,000 for every man, woman, and child, every person in, in the United States. So for a household of four, uh, that's $40,000. So what you'd have to do is to compare, well, whatever good we would do with that, um, is it better, more important, lead to greater benefit in people's lives than what, say, that family would have done with the $40,000? And if you, if you aren't thinking about that, aren't asking that question, then I don't think you're having a full accounting of, this, uh, of the situation. You're not making a full case for it. You know, it's curious. I think fundamentally what I found, I think it's reflected in what you've talked about a little bit already, is this concept that overall about the morality of wealth and that, you know, even if you go to, you know, biblical phrases of the love of money is the root of all evil, there is something deep, deeply ingrained, uh, at least in our Western culture that runs in parallel with capitalist uh, sentiment. And you see that go way back, you know, in Christianity, you know, in, in, with the banking system and all these. I, and as a philosopher, I know you've, you've thought about this, and, I, and, and, I, and it's not necessarily something that's in your book, but I'm curious how you relate some of the historical elements of, you know, Judeo-Christian uh, Western society with, you know, these kinds of uh, things that we're seeing now. Hopefully that's not kind of too, too, too obtuse of a question, but I'm curious. No, 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 not a, not too obtuse at all. No, I think it's, uh, I think it's closely related. Yeah. Um, you know, if you think about the, take that phrase that you mentioned, the uh, money, the love of money is the root of all evil. Sometimes people often 
leave out the beginning of that. They just say money is the root of all evil, but actually it's the love of money is the root of all evil. And I think what part of what's behind that is that people who is the idea that what can happen is that people can take um, the getting of money to be the, the most important thing or the, the top priority in life. And if that's the top priority in life and everything else bows to it, then that can encourage people or incline people to engage in all sorts of immoral behavior in order to get more money. Um, and I think the, the mistake that that phrase points out is that money it, um, is not an end in itself. It's a tool to an end. Um, it's a means to an end. Um, so what matters when I think when you're morally evaluating, say, a person or a person's behavior or the behavior of an organization or an institution, what you need to look at is, well, what are they doing with the resources they have, with the time, talent and treasure they have? What are they doing with it? Um, not whether they have resources, but what exactly are they doing with it? And then even taking a step back, you also have to ask, I think, well, how did they get it? Whoever it is you're evaluating, how did they get it? I mean, uh, to you take a contemporary example. So, um, you know, how much is Jeff Bezos uh, worth now? What's his net worth? Well, you know, $192 billion, something like that. Um, that's a lot of money. Um, so if you want to say, well, is it immoral for one person to have that much money? Um, I think you have to, um, in order to answer that question, you have to ask yourself a couple of questions. One is, well, how did he get it? Did he get it from by um, through deceitful measures, defrauding people, stealing from people, extracting wealth from people? In other words, through zero-sum transactions where people didn't have a choice, that they were um, this was stolen from them, et cetera. That's, that's one kind of case. Or did he get it through mutually voluntary and mutually beneficial transactions that were positive sum? Um, that's a completely different moral question. Um, and I think if you're going to ask about the question about inequality, um, which is connected, I think, with this desire for wealth and how this can lead to um, to various kinds of vices, I think you have to answer, ask that question. And so one of the dangers I think we can that we can that that phrase, uh, the love of money is the root of all evil. I think one of the dangers that that is pointing out is that, yeah, throughout history, there have been an awful lot of examples of people, actually engaging in very immoral behavior, profoundly unjust behavior, um, as they seek to uh, arrogate to themselves wealth and resources and power. That's certainly true. But that's not the only way to generate wealth. And in fact, I would say that's not really um, the way to generate any kind of honorable wealth. The honorable wealth is, or prosperity, what I would call genuine prosperity. Genuine prosperity comes about through mutually voluntary and mutually beneficial transactions, which is a completely different story. And that's the reality of most, I mean, certainly, um, I think most success stories uh, in modern day America. I mean, obviously, you can you can get to some that may be a little bit shady, but it seems to me, uh, and I think you address this a little bit in your book, too, is that, you know, one of the original deadly sins is envy. And that seems to be the cause of anti-capitalism in the first place. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's called one of the seven deadly sins for a reason, I think. Um, right. I mean, I suppose they all are, but that one, too. Um, and I think that's, you know, one of the things that's characteristic of all seven of the seven deadly sins is that it's very difficult to master all of them. You know, just when we think we've mastered one or two, we, we realize we're susceptible or engaging in others. But envy is one of the uh, is one of them, I think, for a reason. And that comes up, I think, in discussions of equality when we ask about or when we're worried about great inequalities in wealth, is the bare fact, so I'll, I'll give you a, a sort of a hypothetical scenario. You know, suppose you have two people, and one person is, a, is worth 100 times more than another person. Do you think, without knowing anything else about that, do you think that it's necessarily the case that 
the society must be unjust in which one person can have a hundred times as much wealth as another person. Right. Um, or is it possible that that difference um, did not come about through injustice, that it came about through cooperative, mutually voluntary, mutually beneficial transactions? Um, if, you, if you're inclined to say, no, it, it must be unjust, then I think it's incumbent on you to then to say, well, where exactly is the injustice? So what, what did the person do to get the wealth that that person should not have done? In other words, was there theft? Was there deceit? Was there fraud? Was there um, you know, conquering lands or whatever, it, whatever the injustice was? You'd have to point it out. And if you can't point it out, if the only thing that bothers you about the inequality is the bare fact that some people have more than others, then I think that raises the question that you're asking, which is, is it really just envy? Is that what you're upset about? Um, and, and if it is, then that's something that um, I think speaks to the salience of that particular of the seven deadly sins. Yeah. And I feel like these days there is, certainly is, um, you know, a wave of cultural uh, stigma against being wealthy or rich or whatever. How do you propose maybe, you know, reversing that or protecting yourself against that stigma? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a hard question. I think one of the things we have to think about is, or we have to contemplate, is that you know before you can say distribute wealth or redistribute wealth or um, you know give to charity or uh, help people who are poor, um, there has to be wealth to distribute. So before you can engage in redistribution, there has to be something to distribute, which means you have to generate wealth. So we have to think about what are the institutions, what are the attitudes and behaviors that actually lead to the creation of wealth, not just its redistribution. And we tend to focus today, I think, a lot on redistributing wealth and not on the creation of wealth. Um, and wealth doesn't get created uh, in a vacuum. It doesn't just naturally happen. It doesn't just naturally occur. Um, it has to be created by human beings with human labor. So I think we have to think about, first of all, the production and creation of wealth, not just the, the distribution uh, or the redistribution of it. Um, but the other thing I might add is, you know, if you think about an example, I remember the great uh, philosopher and statesman Bono of U2. I don't know if you know who that is. <laughs> yeah, sure. um, uh, but I heard him say uh, once, this was many years ago, you know, he said that one of the things he thought was different between America and Ireland, so he's Irish um, from yeah. Ireland, he said in America, what people, you know, maybe this is the way it used to be. I don't know if you can decide whether it's still this way today. But uh, he said that in America, people will look at the, you know, the rich person living in the big mansion on a hill and will say, you know, one day that's going to be me. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Bono said, uh, so don't blame me as the messenger. This is what Bono said. Bono said, but in Ireland, what people do is they look at the rich person living in the mansion on the hill and they say, one day I'm going to get him. <laughs> um and, you know, those are two very different ways of viewing the world. And I think, you know, uh, you know, if we can, you know, make a joke about it, but I think the, the important thing about that or the kernel of truth about that is that, you know, really the way the path to general prosperity is for all of us to improve our situations, um, not one person at the expense of another or not punishing some people because they succeeded or are succeeding more than we are, but rather to celebrate one another's successes, be thankful for the fact that other people's success can, even if only indirectly, also enable me to succeed to a greater degree. And then all of us can try to get better together. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I feel like that is uh, sort of a, you know, the change about, there is a little bit of a change in that American dream, that element, right? I think, you know, I, I do think that in general, I, I, told, I agree with Bono about this concept <laughs> that Americans look at the mansion. I, I can be that person. And, and, you know, we have a culture, we have a, 
a cultural setup that that makes it more possible to do that. I mean, we have stories, you know, I mean, I'm a, a child of a poor first generation immigrants and I'm going quite well. And, you know, you just don't see that in a lot of uh, other, there's not as much social mobility, but there's something that seems to be changing. And I don't know if you agree with that or not, but what is driving the change in sentiment that we're seeing today in the U.S. that is different from maybe you know, what I experienced as a kid in the eighties and nineties. And do you think that's just a wave, an undulation in in the history of this country, or is this kind of just here to stay? Yeah, I I think culture, culture changes and it will continue to change. But, um, you know, maybe one thought that I have, I believe I've noticed about the changing in the culture over the last many years, which I think speaks to your point is that, um, at, at a certain point in America's past, and maybe for most of America's history, it wasn't that people thought that uh, or you know, didn't realize that certain groups, you know, immigrant groups, uh, mm-hmm. African-Americans in the United States, that they weren't unequally disadvantaged by laws and by custom and by, uh, by practice. They, they were. Um, but there was an idea, I think, uh, that more people had in the past and fewer people have now that Although each of us is informed by our identities, um, our identities and our positions and our history, um, but we're not determined by them. So it's possible to overcome them, to rise above them. Um, And so there was an idea that um, no matter how hard things might be, there's still an opportunity for you to work your way out of it or work your way above it. I think what what we might be seeing is more and more people who are doubting that, um, who think that no, your, whatever your history or background or situation, however um, good or bad it was, those things really are determinative of who you are and, and they limit what you can become or what you can achieve or what you can accomplish. And so if they think that those, those things are limitations um, on opportunity, then I think they begin to see the world um, to go back to where we basically where we started in zero sum terms that right. if you succeed, it means I can't. Um, and so, so I need to get what's mine. Um, and, uh, and you're going to try to get what's yours rather than seeing us all in a kind of cooperative venture to increase overall prosperity and freedom for everybody. The, uh, the book again is called seven deadly economic sins, obstacles to prosperity and happiness. Every citizen should know James where we get the book. I assume pretty much everywhere. Uh, you can get it just about anywhere. It's uh, available on Amazon. It was published by Cambridge University Press, so you can get it on Cambridge's website, but it's also available on Amazon in uh, in physical copy and even in digital copy. Oh, fantastic. Is it on Audible? Uh, not yet. We're not working yet. on that. Got to get that. I hope you. I we hope, will get that. We're working on it. I hope you read it yourself. You have a great, uh, great way of explaining things. James, thanks so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you very much, Bucks. It's a pleasure to be with you. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed it. I think these kinds of uh, podcasts are very important, and I think they're important not only for you to to listen to yourself and, and try to process how some of these things come into your own mind, but also, you know, these are the types of things that you want your family, that people in your lives are constantly talking about, you know, paying your fair share or how the, you know, rich are evil and all that. That's the kind of stuff that uh, you know, these people need to listen to. So do yourself a favor and send this podcast link over to some of those people in your life. Also, I think it's a good one for children as well. I think 
I may have my own kids listen to it myself, especially my 12 year old. Not that she's a, she, not that she's a socialist or anything like that, but she's the one who probably understand it more than anybody else. Anyway, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.